welcome to the International Women's Day podcast series two. In 2022, the theme is Breaking the Bias. So following on from exploring feminism in series one, this podcast aims to explore how we break the bias in the divorce arena in the UK. I'm Kerry Griffiths. I'm a proud feminist and I'm also a financial planner who works exclusively with women divorcing wealthy and powerful men. So you can probably guess why this is a topic I want to dig into. I'm interviewing some leading academics, lawyers and divorce coaches to uncover where the bias in divorce shows up and debate how we can create the change we feel we need to see. Hello, welcome to episode one in our second series. I am delighted, delighted, delighted to have Sharon Thompson as my first guest. Um, When I decided to run this podcast for International Women's Day, I put a post out to my network specifically seeking some academic input. And quite simply, this podcast could have been made for Sharon. Um, So let me tell you a little bit more about her. She is a reader in the School of Law and Politics at Cardiff University. And within the family law context, her research is to challenge the assumptions and stereotypes about women and the law, from exposing power dynamics in prenuptial agreements and questioning the meaning and implications of the gold digger to developing new feminist approaches to contract law. She re-examines family law history through a feminist lens to uncover new perspectives on how law is reformed. Her work on prenups has been cited and applied by the High Court of Australia, and she was featured, she was the featured legal historian in the BBC Radio 4 series, The Battles That Won Our Freedoms. So she comes with a wealth of experience. She has authored two monographs, Prenuptial Agreements and the Presumption of Free Choice, and Quiet Revolutionaries, the Married Women's Association of Family Law. And I will reference them below if you want to go and check those out. But specifically, there are two articles that we've just spoken about, Sharon and I, before I came on, that both publicly available. One is a millstone around the neck, stereotypes about wives and myths about divorce. And the second is in defense of the gold digger. And they are just mind-blowingly accurate. Um, so Sharon, I'm, you know, welcome. It's really wonderful to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> um, I know you were excited when you heard about the podcast um, because it's definitely a good match, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, because the, as, as you've said, the work that I'm interested in researching is literally about breaking the bias in the fields of financial remedies. Perfect, it's perfect. And Sharon and I have had a meeting before this one and a brief chat today as well. And I know we could talk forever because what Sharon researches is what I see day to day. And it's very validating to hear from the opposite perspective what you have established. Um, so, yeah, we have really enjoyed talking about bias and divorce and kind of what's going on. And We'll have a really open conversation. So what you're going to get from uh, this podcast is a chance to hear from Sharon's research what's going on. Um, And I'm going to pick her brains and kind of find out, you know, a little bit more about some of those terms and specifically that, you know, bias in divorce. So as a starting point, do you want to kick off, Sharon, with where you think we need to break that bias in divorce? Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, one bias I would suggest does need to be broken is this notion that women who receive maybe a large lump sum in divorce, for example, that those women must be a gold digger. And that's what we often see in mere reports about big money divorces. And I think that's important because it has a knock on effect as well in terms of reinforcing bias around, for example, who is actually entitled to the lion's share of the assets on divorce and as well why prenuptial agreements are seen as important. So 
breaking some of those um, different biases, I think, is crucial because they can influence how people make decisions, how people reach financial settlements. So in my research, for example, I've identified the language of the gold digger as being part of conversations about financial remedies on divorce. And I think that's quite shocking, actually, given that the research also demonstrates that in spite of these perceptions or rather misperceptions, there is this significant gap between um, recovery rates economically between men and women on divorce. So this basically contributes to women's inequality on divorce. There's a lot to unpack in that because you're talking there about the language and how that is actually playing out legally um, and impacting outcomes there. Is that what you're saying, Sharon, as well? Yes, it does definitely have this kind of impact on outcomes because when we look at the language of the gold digger, first of all, it's inherently gendered. So uh, even looking back to the dictionary definition of the term, one of the definitions is a woman who forms relationships with men purely to obtain money or gifts from them. That's in the Oxford English Dictionary. So it's woman, not men. And it's a derogatory term associated with greed, associated with exploiting men. And so when we see it, employed in the media, we see it almost always used to vilify women, not men. So I think the way that's used then is quite interesting because it is actually a bit of a smokescreen. It is nothing to do with women's intentions where we see the term used. It's purely about women getting money that others believe they should not be entitled to. So, you know, we were you, you were mentioning about outcomes on divorce. I think one example is this example of the big money divorce where the focus is maybe on, you know, it's not on the CEO husband, for instance, getting most of the assets. It's instead on why the wife is getting anything really. So even though the law is clear that marriage generates entitlement and that's you know, the the law is saying people's caregiving and domestic work should be worth something. There is still this pervasive view that it's his money and not hers. But it's not accurate to say it's his money because in many cases he could only be this CEO because his wife is basically managing everything else in his life. You know, I saw um, a podcast recently and it was just costing out if you were to work out how much it would be to have somebody do all of those jobs for you in your life, you know, to be that child raiser, the the housekeeper, the cook, personal assistant, you know, there are so many hats that women put on and the cost of that is significant. And I think the other thing that we really forget about is, and, you know, certainly with the women that I work with, they are in these big money divorces and they are sacrificing their own lives and careers because there's a lot of travel often that's involved. Um, and a lot of personal kind of sacrifice to be able to allow one person to pursue such a successful career. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting point about um, those sacrifices that are made that maybe aren't always really properly realised what the cost of that is. Um, Yeah, as you say, that can have a massive, massive cost, not just in terms of, you know, your own career progression, but the pension that you would get once you retire as well, because you've been taken out of the labour market um, and some of the research that I've done around the area of prenuptial agreements shows that that's something that can be sometimes difficult to anticipate so for example um, I did interview some attorneys in New York and one really interesting example from an attorney was where they were representing a really wealthy actress so you know a well-known wealthy actress who was very independently wealthy but in a prenup 
she was signing away her right to share in her husband's wealth. So in addition to that, she's talking about once she got married, giving up a lot of her career to be with her husband for the reasons you're talking about, you know, a lot of travel being involved. So I think that shows that that's also something that people miss sometimes, even in cases where someone might be really wealthy and independent before marriage, family life more often than not creates dependency in a way that might not be anticipated. Um, and those choices that are made are joint choices. Um, and it isn't that she necessarily had any intention of there being um, an access to his money in any way. But that dependency and that link is created and it leaves women. You know, my common experience with women is they just want what's fair so that they can then leave an independent life afterwards. And it's that journey to kind of getting through divorce to get and a level of money that allows them to be independent. And their pursuit of that is what people see as gold digging. And it isn't at all, it isn't gold digging. It's okay, I need to rebuild and I need to be able to have a platform to do that from, um, which is impossible to get without some financial stability. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you aren't given that starting point of kind of being able to, rebuild as you say on an equal par with your husband then that shows how outcomes in divorce can really financially discriminate against women even if the law says that it shouldn't when you look at the research and the statistics on this there is this massive financial gap in recovery rates as I've said and and so I think that that's a really important point that you've made and, and as well the, the point about choice was really interesting you know They've made a joint decision to do this. And, and you do see people saying, oh, well, she's chosen to take herself out of the, the labor market. She's chosen to make these sacrifices. But I think that perception maybe doesn't take into account that this fact that one person's freedom to make that choice, of course, depends on the relationship. It depends on the circumstances that they're in. Um, you know, Yes, there's more female breadwinners than ever before, for example, but that doesn't mean we should assume all the work in the home is divided equally. And actually, we know from studies since the pandemic that there is still significant inequality in terms of domestic labor. You know, it's not it's not divided up equally. And so, you know, why shouldn't that be valued on, on divorce? So taking this view that women's entitlement on divorce or, you know, awards to allow them to become independent, taking the view that that's infantilizing I think needs to be challenged because in order to take that view you also need to believe that caregiving and domestic work in the home isn't worth anything because that can be what the award is based on and so to have that view you almost have to turn a blind eye to the inequalities between the sexes which the research shows are there and, and of course your work um, and your own experiences show are present as well. Yeah, and we had a really interesting conversation about how certain types of feminism play out here as well. And, you know, that there are certain women who 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 take that viewpoint. I was sharing with Sharon that I had posted something quite innocuous around making sure that there were certain outgoings included when you were calculating your budget in, in a divorce. Um, and some of the comments, well, one of the comments, just one woman talking about um women being independent it is very strong viewpoint that a woman should never rely on a man and should be independent 
that's a lot to battle with, isn't it, Sharon? You know, when you're already going through a divorce, this kind of, you know, viewpoint and this judgment that is out there. Yeah, and that again links back to the, the bias that we're talking about here, the, the bias of the stereotype of, of the gold digger and how there really is a very kind of, there, there is a strong feminist reaction, understandably, about it as well. You know, when we look at what the term means, of course, it's a derogatory thing to be labeled. And of course, it would be an understandable feminist reaction to go against that. But I think what we need to do is understand how that term is used more and understand how it's being used to discriminate against women. So I think that maybe what um, people with who are saying those things to you are maybe missing is that actually by questioning women's awards and divorce and using this bias to question that it's almost like a kind of kind of form of policing women and and looking at what's acceptable behavior according to men and then by saying a woman is a gold digger you're kind of juxtaposing that person against the independent woman the respectable woman but I think the thing we need to remember is that you know, women are called gold diggers regardless of their intentions. It really is this so fictional true. label that reinforces, you know, the law reinforces discrimination against women. Um, and I think that that has a knock-on effect too, you know, if people are saying, well, well, this is, this is, you know, as I say, infantilizing for women or whatever, you know, we know then that when this label is applied to women, or this bias that that's uh, of the gold digger, women then feel uncomfortable asking for money um, in a way that, um, you know, arguably men don't, you know, it's, it's not so stigmatized for men to be self-interested in that way around money. So for women feeling uncomfortable about money, that is actually a really important knock-on effect, maybe in the workplace, for example, but also in the context of the family. And the gold digger stereotype certainly doesn't help there. Um, and like they just have to justify so much more don't they to get get what they're legally entitled to what they're legitimately entitled to that justification because this label has been applied I find many women Sharon who I talk about the fight flight or freeze response um, and and you know there's not many women who fight this what I tend to find is they will just sign and they'll just the reason they like quite often will reach out to me is they'll say is this enough? Like, this is what he's offering and I haven't got it in me to fight. Is this enough? Can we just sense check it? Um, and they they just take, because they don't want to have to go up against this stigma. Um, and they, they a little bit believe it, a little bit believe that asking for what they need isn't right. Um, and there's so much work we need to do, isn't there, to create an environment where being self-interested is okay you know as you said as, as the men are quite confident to be self-interested is rational you know you're looking after the rest of your life it's rational to get what you need and and deserve what you need what what are your thoughts about how do we do that how how do we break this bias have you got any kind of any input to give there um yeah just just to first kind of go back to the point you made because i thought it was just such a good example of how it's used to of, of the power of the bias itself i just thought that was really really interesting the way you were talking about your experiences of 
of women saying, is this enough and not wanting to ask for more? I think that just shows how powerful the, the gold digger stereotype is. So in terms of you know your next question about breaking the bias, I think the first thing to do is to tackle that head on and to understand that power, um, to understand like, you know, the onus is being put on women to, for example, before marriage in the context of a prenup, almost to prove they're not marrying that person for their money um, or on divorce to prove that they're not being a gold digger by therefore signing away maybe what they would otherwise be entitled to in a financial settlement. So um, I think tackling that bias head on would have a massive impact. Maybe destigmatizing the idea of the gold digger, at least understanding better what it means and, and how it's used. Um, as I found in my research, women are labeled gold diggers, whether they intend to form relationships with men for money or not. So, you know, my point about destigmatizing it isn't to say women, of course, should prey on rich men. My point is about trying to challenge and to undermine the, the power surrounding this bias and, and the stereotype. So um, I guess the point is that a, a woman's reasons for marriage shouldn't be questioned any more than a man's. Um, and these reasons certainly shouldn't justify skepticism towards women getting money that they're entitled to, for example, in divorce. So being able to, I think, have conversations like we're having now, um, talking about these this bias, talking about gold diggers, for example, and also debating those who view our current law is encouraging gold diggers is really important. Um, and I think that's important because there's a gap between what the law is and what social perceptions of the law are. So being able to step into the debate with accurate information on the law and evidence as well of the detrimental impact of the gold digger bias is important because people's social perceptions are important. You know, if someone has no money but is worried they might be gold digger they might you know make those settlements that you're talking about they might uh, maybe in a prenuptial context sign away sign that prenup that gives them no claim to their partner's assets for example but if they can understand that the reason they are entitled to financial provision on divorce isn't because the law rewards gold diggers but because the law recognizes the importance of valuing care and money equally I think their decision to make that settlement could be a bit different here. Um, so I know that's something that can't, it's not something that can be reformed by law because um, it's something that's largely reinforced by the media and, and pop culture. Um, so in terms of legal reform, I suppose um, that's maybe a more difficult question about what could be done, but it would be good if some of the principles from the case law, which emphasize equality and not discriminating against men and women in the relationship. If those principles could be you know, emphasized or codified in statute, I certainly think any legislative reform should focus on non-financial contributions and on the impact any changes would have on women, not on sort of thwarting the mythical gold digger. Um, because limiting maintenance and making property adjustment inflexible, as some of the proposals currently before Parliament suggest, that would detrimentally affect the spouse with most of the caring responsibilities. Um, and then in terms of, <laughs> I realise I'm talking about quite a lot of different options for reform and on, rather yeah. than kind of one, one yeah, remedy. Yeah. But um, I suppose another thing that I'm interested in, in looking at whether it would be worth changing in law is 
maybe if spouses had some sort of a legal right to know what their partner's income and wealth is. So having that knowledge about the other person's income, and that's something I would be really interested to talk to you about more as well in your experiences in terms of people's knowledge of one another's assets and divorce, because I do wonder whether that sort of transparency could lead to these more open and honest discussions about finances during the marriage, you know, before the marriage is broken down. And at that time, obviously, when the marriage is broken down, resolving things amicably becomes much more difficult as well so yeah there's there is so much to unpack in that so I think we could definitely do another podcast on that <laughs> there is you know absolutely um a, a sense of vulnerability that comes from not having that line of sight but also uh, there's a lot of self-judgment that comes from being in a position where you feel that maybe you have dropped the ball and that you should have stayed closer to the finances but logically and efficiently you have delegated roles and he's looked after the finance side of things because there were so many other plates to be you know kind of spun that it was a really sensible thing to do um so yeah I think we could really unpack I could talk about that for quite a while and I think it would be really useful for women to hear why being in that situation is not something that they should judge themselves on and why it's a really normal thing something I'm really interested in and it's actually never linked until you started talking about it although it is something I talk about quite a lot. Um, I don't know if you've heard this term good divorce, Sharon, or you're aware of kind of this focus um, and this encouragement for divorces to be amicable. You know, it's something that I experience an awful lot. And I have been a little bit vocal about how pressurized my clients specifically feel around this. Um, and, And I've had quite a lot of nervousness around my clients who are it's almost been weaponized that their partner is saying if you dig too much here if you ask for too much if you push this too much it's not going to be amicable and it will be your fault has that come up in your research yet or is that something that you'd be interested in exploring it's definitely something i'd be interested in exploring more and yes that narrative of the good divorce i think is is a powerful one and for good reason as well in terms of you know, it's it's not a good thing for the family, especially when there are children, if it, the process is going to go on and on. And that's obviously influenced the recent reform of divorce law that's coming into effect um, in April this year, where you know, we are completely removing the element of fault from divorce. So I definitely think there are positives to encouraging a good divorce. But in terms of that being used against women who maybe are asking for a bit more in divorce yes I think that would be interesting to explore more because I can absolutely see how that would be very problematic actually um, in terms of you know making um, women in particular situations settle for uh, a, a financial position that would be grossly unequal to their partner. And from that I see it time and time again typically what would happen is a client will approach me and say my ex has said that this is a really good deal. If I don't get a legal team involved, we can settle it really amicably. Um, and then when I kind of give it a, a, a view over, I say, you need to get some legal advice here because I can tell that it isn't in line with how things would be done legally. Um, and so I, I direct them that way. But there's this real sense of if you don't do this amicably, then you are the gold digger and you are just after my money. 
um, and you're going to be the reason that we end up fighting. And I think that is a really interesting thing to explore. And um, mm. it's a really difficult dynamic in the community that I operate in, the kind of encouragement of good divorce, particularly with no fault divorce coming in April. Um, and then the controversy that I bring to it around actually asking for what you're entitled to doesn't mean that it's not a good divorce. You can still yes. have a good divorce. You can still do things amicably just because she doesn't want your first offer doesn't mean that she's wrong. And I think we need to change the language around that as well. Yeah, oh, that, I, I love how you've put that. And I think it's just so interesting the way you say the, the controversy around asking what you're entitled to that just gets to the heart of, of why this bias needs to be to be broken you know um, why should it be controversial to ask for what you're entitled to it's such a manipulative discourse and and, and you could see how it really helps explain why the research shows there are so there is so much inequality in divorce you know not only in terms of people getting back on their feet again financially, but also a big one is um, the disparity in pension wealth across all couples, across all ages, across all levels of wealth. Because of course, if your partner's coming to you and saying, oh, we can sort this out, let's not, let's not make things acrimonious, um, you know, let's settle for this. On a lot of occasions, people aren't taking into account pension wealth, which in a lot of a lot of circumstances can outstrip the, the kind of capital assets that the couple has between themselves. Or that's really misinterpreted because pensions are complicated. So then they yeah. say, oh, yeah, this is what my pension is. And it's just really misunderstood. It can be really by both parties, by both parties can really misunderstand the value that it brings. And I think that kind of brings me to I kind of the, the the sense that I get from the clients that I work with is that they they understand kind of where the middle ground is, where what they're entitled to. And they are almost on this journey that they have to bring their ex to here, that their ex thinks that they're not. And then they have to do all this negotiating and all this work to bring them just to here. Um, and, and, and that generally just means that she ends up moving this way a little bit more towards him because otherwise it looks like she's not compromising. Um, and that he's giving whereas actually it's just on in my experience his perception on what she's entitled to is quite far off the mark and there's a lot of work that needs to be done before he gets to the place that she already has that understanding of so that whole part around the value of her contribution him recognizing that takes a long time and we end up in a situation where it's rely on her ability to negotiate if she is using a legal team or not her ability to negotiate and convince him and that I have particular concerns when they're in mediation and you know particularly if it's you know like the CEOs we've been talking about today when they day in day out do this level of negotiation and then you have a client who has to convince her other half that his perception on what is fair is not fair yeah I think that's that's such a, a perfect explanation of how the leveling the the playing field is not level. It's it's just not it, as you say. The the starting points are are different there, and when the onus is put on you to prove your entitlement as opposed to that just being accepted, um, it's a real uphill battle then in in conducting that negotiation. Yeah, and and conducting it against an expert 
because they're likely often to be much better at it. I'm, I'm assuming from my type of clients, and so to be more general here, I just happen to have clients who are divorcing those CEOs and they are really good at negotiating. And it is, yeah, you, you make a conscious choice about whether you go into that or whether you fly, as I said, you just take what's been offered and avoid. And there's quite often a cash benefit, kind of a, a risk benefit analysis I'll do with the client to see whether or not it's worth they feel it's worth them actually pursuing things or if it's just better to take it what's being offered and have a have a, a more peaceful future um with that person still involved with their children etc it's a lot that has to be weighed up isn't there because there's more than just the loss of the money it's the loss of that um interaction with your children that so many women fear yes i think that the the uh, you know, stirring up um, more acrimony and stuff. Yeah, there is that guilt around the impact that'll have on the children, which is so understandable. And I think your experiences also just show that this is an issue across the board. So you're maybe dealing with more wealthy clients and, and that even of itself, even when there are enough assets to go around to meet people's needs, it's still a struggle figuring things out. And, and then on the other end of the spectrum, in the kind of everyday case, there aren't enough assets even to cater for the party's needs. And it becomes this real struggle in another sense where they might not even have access to legal advice at all, um, especially post-legal aid cuts. Yeah, there's no, there's no legal aid for it. Um, and there are just all of these compromises that have to be made that in reality, do tend to disproportionately affect the person who's the primary carer of the children. So it's sacrifice upon sacrifice. And um, yeah, it's it's un, it's unfortunate, but it really helps, you know, make the the research that shows this inequality, understanding that makes it make sense if 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 um yeah. if you know what I mean. Hundred <laughs> percent. Karen, I think we've kind of covered broadly the main things. Is there anything else that you had kind of thought of that you wanted to bring up that kind of raise in this, this kind of discussion? I think just the general need to challenge our thinking around, you know, financial remedies and divorce and to challenge the kind of idea of the independent woman and trying to prove you're the independent woman and you know to know that the realities of family life are that they create dependency for both men and women and that that's okay and as as a as a woman being part of that relationship there shouldn't be any shame of recognizing the reality of that and I think recognizing the the power of the stereotype in and of itself is a kind of stereotype that's used to police women's behavior and hopefully if people can realize that they can then realize that they aren't gold diggers and they don't need to prove that they aren't either this is a bias that needs to be broken so powerful thank you so much i am certain we're going to talk more and do some more podcasts and youtubes together thank you so much for your input today sharon and yeah let's catch up again soon take care you have been listening to the International Women's Day podcast series two, Breaking the Bias on Divorce. Please do tell your friends and let's keep the conversation going about the changes we need to see.